It's the 27th anniversary of the Exxon Valdez crash. All that on more on this Energy and Materials edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. Sean O'Reilly here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Thursday, March 24th, 2016, and joining me to talk all things energy and materials is Tyler Crow and Taylor Markman. How's everybody doing? Doing pretty good, man. We uh, we missed you last couple of weeks, Mr. Crow. Well, I mean... Well, last week we did a pre-recorded That's interview, true. Anyway, which was so, awesome, by the so way. So the the, read, the listeners did not miss me. No, just put it of course that way. they did, they did not miss your your insights and your intelligence. Yeah, and yeah, your, yeah, 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 yeah. Now you're just trying to blow smoke up my butt. Well, you know. Anyway, um, so uh, real quick before we dive in here, Mr. Muckerman, 27th yes. anniversary, and uh, I haven't seen that online. You you were the one that told me. Yeah, I just in a daily um, email from the Wall Street Journal on on some things energy. There was like the fact of the day was that it happened in 1989 on March 24th. That was a big deal back then. Why does nobody care anymore? I I don't know. I guess because you haven't really seen other than uh, the Gulf in what was it 2010. Well, yeah. Do people um, care about BP now? Like, oh, I'm sure in a couple of days. I mean, we're going to be. This is going to be the fifth year anniversary of it. Yeah. I'm sure somebody will say something okay. about it, and that might also be part of it because the BP oil spill was that much bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there just might be the, eh, why don't we focus on this one and we'll just stay mad at BP instead of Exxon Mobil? Uh, Aside from the Rockefeller family, who actually just divested their last shares out of their trust. Could you trust believe how into, small the trust was, though? Yeah. No, not really. I was like, wow, that's it. Anyway, uh, for, for our listeners that don't know, feel free to Google it. But um, the Rockefeller Trust, which, you know, obviously is the legacy of one John D. Rockefeller, the founder of, I mean, ExxonMobil was just a part of what was once Standard Oil. I yeah. mean, it was a, it was the, the American corporation. Um, but uh, I think the trust was just $130 million at last count. Something like that. Not because uh, Rockefeller was one of the world's first billionaires. Anyway. Uh, so moving on to the events of the day. First up, um, I guess it's LNG's turn to go through a bit of a rough patch in uh, sympathy with uh, just natural gas and oil and all that. Um, Australia, o- Australian oil and gas giant Woodside Petroleum, which I mean they're the biggest. Correct me if I'm wrong. Australian oil company, right? I mean they're 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 their Exxon Mobil. Um, shelved plans to develop a $40 billion, and that's U.S. dollars, um, liquefied natural gas project. Um, that's big, no matter how you slice it. Um, Asian, Asian LNG prices have declined 45% over the year, past year, so I guess we can't be surprised there. Um, as I understand it, U.S.-based LNG exports are the low-cost option just because we have so much natural gas in the continental United States. Is there a window of opportunity as these other LNG facilities get nixed? I think so. I mean, we're at a point now where we had this mad rush. I mean, back in, um, what was it, 2010, 2011, shale was really starting to take off. And you had, like, you know, the big push in even just before that with oil prices as high as it was, everyone was kind of looking at natural gas as a possible alternative, and LNG got really sexy for a while there. Right. I mean, you had, like, Chevron with its Gorgon project and its Wheatstone project, and it seemed like Royal Dutch Shell brought you know brought out five different projects at the same time. Everything focused on LNG. And now we're starting to um, – they're starting to look at it going, oh, shoot, maybe we're trying to bring too much on all at once, and the demand hasn't quite been there yet. And so – um, you know, we have 
what it's uh, Woodsize's Browse LNG has been nixed now. Um, Royal Dutch Shell had one called Arrow LNG that it nixed last year, and then we've got two very big ones uh, up in the British Columbia area. One Chevron's Kitimat, and another one from Petronas called Canada LNG, and those are kind of looking a little shaky uh, as right. of now. I was actually up in Canada two weeks ago, and I was listening on the radio, and all they're all worried about the kind of the northeast gas fields in British Columbia laying off people left and right because it's looking like these LNG facilities might not go through. And yeah. a lot of those are due to environmental issues in, in Canada. They've been fighting, or not fighting, but going back and forth on that for the past three years or so. So, um, yeah, those are both still on the fence. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, Mr. Fool Canada himself, yeah. Taylor, um, how do you see the shaking out, um, not only for U.S. players, but uh, Canadian players? Because do, do you lump Canadian LNG producers with U.S. producers? Um, not so much. There's, there are definitely different companies operating in both, in both uh, areas. But when you look at, you know, the possibility of exporting, I'm sure that a U.S. producer in the North Pacific Northwest could get involved with those British Columbia facilities to export natural gas, um, due to the proximity. So maybe some, some natural gas from the Bakken, if there's anything coming out of there, they could, instead of flare, they could ship it to these export facilities to be converted to LNG and, and sent overseas. But, um, the U S has, what was it? Uh, six approved facilities that are under construction right now to export wow. natural gas. So we're talking about, you know, several billion cubic feet per day of export, uh, capacity. And the Sabine first train just came on, uh, this year. So, we're seeing a lot of progress there in the U.S. and not so much elsewhere in the world. Wow. Yeah, I, I was actually uh, looking at Chenier Energy's um, like investor presentations yesterday, and the total amount that's expected to come online between now and 2025 in the United States alone is uh, 50 million tons per year of LNG. Um, really quick, just before we move on, you know, either of you, maybe Taylor, um, what is LNG primarily used for these days? Um, so, you know, you're bringing it over. You're, a, the ships are going to start using it as power to transport themselves while they're carrying the LNG. But then once you get it to an import facility, um, you can, I guess, for lack of better terms, thaw it out and then use that natural gas um, as okay. a power source. So once you raise the temperature, then it just becomes regular old natural gas. Yeah, it returns okay. to the gas state. And um, when you look at the, the spreads between natural gas in the u.s and natural gas in, in say asia and europe as well it's huge, um, right yeah it, it was a lot bigger I, i'm not sure if it's still as wide as it was um, but it, evidently it's still economical for companies like chenier to liquefy their natural gas ship it and then regasify it and, and still have a profit there to be made got it yeah and it's actually um on a slightly small kind of maybe more like a longer tail sort of approach to LNG is actually, if you look at some of the domestic players in the United States, they're actually looking to build natural gas engines that run on LNG rather than like the gaseous mm -hmm. gaseous yeah. state of natural gas, basically because LNG itself is a more energy-dense product. You know, uh, you know, one of the biggest reasons we've had a hard time replacing diesel and gasoline yeah, there's around the so world, much energy there's so much energy packed, packed in into there. it. Yeah. And so... You know, natural gas, it's in a gaseous state. It, it doesn't have the energy density. And so, you know, there's a couple companies like Clean Energy Fuel is actually building LNG fueling stations. And there's Don't a they couple, have like 500 already or well, something? Well, that's compressed natural okay, gas yeah. as well. But um, 
you know, there is a little bit of the idea that you could use the energy density of LNG to help replace the traditional gasoline market in things like long-haul trucking and things like that. It's a pretty long tail because, I mean, handling liquefied natural gas at its super-cooled state would be very, very difficult to do on a small scale. But it. it's an idea. So, uh, guys, this is a story that we have talked about before. We will definitely talk about again. And that is, of course, the Halliburton-Baker-Hughes merger. Um, not only has the deal been held up by the European Union, but now French oil giant Total has voiced objections as well. Um, Taylor, I want to start with you. Is this the final nail in the coffin? I mean, when are, when are we going to call this thing? I don't think so. I mean, both companies, you know, the deal for them uh, is April 30th is when it can be terminated. Um, it's not an automatic termination, but that's when Baker Hughes could, you know, say this isn't clearly going to work. We're, and then a we're big gonna, check is written. <laughs> we're going to pull out. Yeah, then a $3.5 billion check is written by Halliburton. Um, so they still have over a month until that happens. But even still, I believe that both parties would want this to go through. Um, so from that point of view, I don't think this is the final nail in the coffin. I just don't understand how they could have originally, back in July, been told that they didn't. This is not Halliburton in particular. This is They haven't specified which company hasn't given details that they need. Um, but this happened last July. They said the European Union said they needed more crucial details that were missing. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're saying now. So I don't understand. Unless they need details on an ongoing basis as things change, then this is kind of... You know, it's it's kind of uh, vexing me right now. I don't right. understand it. Tyler, were you surprised when Total came out? Because you were saying that they're not the only big oil company that's like saying no, <laughs> we don't want this. Why well, would you have to understand the interest, right? Yeah, yeah. Why would any oil and gas producer want less competition from its service providers? I mean, it's basically almost like a transfer of power. If oil service providers get bigger. They can command better pricing power. They can you know, charge more for what they're doing because they can basically say, hey, there's less of us involved. We don't have to undercut seven players. We only have to undercut three or something like that or in this case, two versus three players. And you know, so of course they're going to come out and say, we don't like it. And of course Halliburton and Baker Hughes are going to do everything in their power to try to get it done um, simply because, like you said, better pricing power. My biggest fear of, I guess, what we could call a zombie story, because it's been going on for uh, it's been well over a year six, now. Eight, yeah, it's been yeah, it's close to eighteen months, I think. November is the monthly anniversary. We talked so. about this on our first episode together. Yeah. all three of us. <laughs> so, my my one fear for anybody invested in this would be that, with all the regulation and you know approval that has to go through it, my one fear would be that they actually have to kind of divest themselves of so many different options and services that they're really not a whole lot bigger than Halliburton was originally. That's that would be my one thing that kind of would get me hung up on the whole project on the whole process. Got so I, I definitely get that. Um but from everything I've read, they're not really hung up on um the divestitures at the moment. I mean they're just hung up on a lack of details. Could that lead to more forced divestitures? Yes, but they're not really specifying um, what they're looking at exactly. Um, they've already announced that they're going to sell Baker Hughes's offshore drilling and completion fluids division um, and a few of their overlapping on-land businesses. So, uh, And if they do sell it all, then they're flush with cash, right? So maybe they go out and um, really hammer home on some of their, their 
the areas where they have already an advantage and they just extend that, but they're more concentrated. Cool. All right. Well, before we move on, I wanted to point out to our listeners that April is Financial Literacy Month. And in that spirit, we are giving away 10 books to 10 lucky winners. Uh, These books include favorite financial picks from David Gardner, Morgan Housel, and so many more. To enter to win, just go to podcast.fool.com and click on the Super Podcast link at the top of the page. Once again, that is podcast.fool.com. Um, so moving on, this is actually another ongoing story that we've had. Um, you guys will remember where we weren't sure if it doesn't seem like we have any quick hit. Like something happens, and it, it just seems like the nowadays all of our stories are just like, man, this just just keeps going on. We dearth of material. It's a sad thing, I guess. Um, but uh, our listeners will remember. And I'm sure you guys remember. Um, Everybody thought that in a bankruptcy court, uh, distribution contact contracts between a producer and a pipeline company would kind of be held as sacred. And these contracts, I mean, what were we talking about? They went out as far as five or six years in yeah. a lot of cases. Um, in a great piece put together by the Fool's own Matt Delalo, we recently got the details on some contract negotiations between, I mean, I'm just going to say the word troubled, Chesapeake Energy. I mean, they're very, you know, what are their bonds at? 10, 20 cents on the dollar right now? Anyway. Not good. Not good. Um, but they're negotiating with uh, energy transfer equity and Williams companies. And based upon the length of the contracts, it seems like these two distributors, the pipeline distributors, Energy Transfer and Williams, they're not too worried about Chesapeake. Um, how surprised, Tyler, were you when you read this? Either they're not worried at all, or they're really worried. I mean, it could go either way. Um, this is kind of a catch twenty two kind of. So, a... it, the the whole gist of it is is that Chesapeake Energy is looking, you know, not good, and there is a very real possibility that because um, they're primarily natural it, gas producer, and yeah, that gas is still less stupid than stupid cheap. Yeah, and you know, there's a possibility that it could go under. And so, what has happened here is Energy Transfer and Williams Companies, two companies that actually rely pretty heavily. Do you know the breakdown? On uh, Williams, Williams Partners, so the subsidiary of Williams Company, 20% of their revenue comes from wow. Chesapeake Energy. Okay. So basically the idea is we're going to cut them a little bit of a break on how much we're going to charge to use our systems, our gathering systems, pipeline network distribution, in the opportunity that uh, – that they'll have higher volumes in the coming years, and we'll make it up in a couple of years once these guys start to head back in the right direction. Got it. So there's that idea, and that's how they kind of pitched it as the upside of, yeah, we'll give them a little break now, but you know, we really see the opportunity to gain in a couple of years with the higher volume growth. The the, the I think the bigger question is is it. Is Chesapeake going to be around long enough to actually get the higher volume growth? And that's the reason I look at this deal and go, yeah, they're cutting because they're cutting how much they're charging Chesapeake because Chesapeake can't pay it. And if they don't, then, you know, they're going to have to go find a whole new company to get it from. Yeah. Uh, so, Taylor, do you think that <laughs> what Tyler said, do you think they're not worried at all or they're actually really worried and they're trying to save them? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to go ahead and agree with him on this one. It's kind of screwy. Anyway, okay. So we just got an update on the Sabine situation. I said that right, right? Yes. Um, in a follow-up to what we were talking about a couple of months ago, um, the judge actually ruled, and it was kind of hinted when we talked about this, that uh, oil driller Sabine Oil & Gas Corp., which filed for bankruptcy in July, could reject contracts with two pipeline operators – um, HPIP Gonzalez Holdings and Shenyer Energy's Nordheim Eagle Ford Gathering. Wow, that's a long name. Anyway, um, there's 
that's the one thing with energy companies. They're not has, creative. They're not. They have horrible names. They're not. They're creative. the worst names in energy. Um, I I'm really surprised at this. Like, it, what, what, why bother having a contract then? Like, if you know, I I think. Taylor's rant a couple of weeks ago was the perfect example of that. It's like, it's like <laughs> pay well, thank it. you like, very much. I'm tipping my hat. Um, but uh, and that's another thing. Like when we look at this kind of Chesapeake deal um, that they're doing with Williams Company, basically this court decision kind of says, yeah, if a company's in bankrupt bankruptcy, they can rip up these contracts and not make it worth it. So, so that's why Chesapeake. If, is if you have Chesapeake that is kind of teetering on bankruptcy, Williams might be like, well, if we renegotiate a better contract now that Maybe helps them get through, they don't go bankrupt and completely rip up the contract and have to go to somewhere else. And so then this- all that development that we've done for a you know, to work with them over the years is flushed down the toilet. Okay, so bottom line, this probably means everybody's in trouble. Uh, a little bit. Okay, cool. <laughs> Maybe that's me being a little bit more pessimistic, but right. that's kind of my take on what's going on. Um, and winding down here, we have a listener question. So it's time for mailbag. Uh, CoWest Wins writes in, um, and I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, thanks for the recent podcast on the battery industry. Do you think there are threats to the industry at large? Also, with Tesla building its gigafactory, would that, basically buying Tesla, be the best way to invest in the future of battery usage? Thanks. Love the podcast. Um, I guess I'll take that since I did the interview last week on uh, with Steve Levine uh, on his book, The Powerhouse. Um, so what are the biggest threats to the industry? Uh well, one of the things that you really have to consider – Cheap uh, oil. Well, I was just going to say technology development in general. We're looking at um, something in – we're looking at a product that is still technologically a little incomplete. We haven't – we figured out a pretty good solution. We haven't figured out the ideal situation, uh, solution. The one is that is actually going to be able to you know, compete heads up, no – you know, no uh, subsidies, no government favorability. Um, because technically, a lithon- lithium-ion battery is a chemical reaction. Right. They lose their efficiency after. I mean, correct me, just a couple of years. I mean, it starts dropping a it, little bit. It, it's on charge cycles. It's not actually yeah. on any specific timeline. But how many times that you charge and discharge the battery? It, there are components within the structure of the battery that will start to break down as those ions right. kind of transfer back and forth, and so. The biggest threat basically is that today's technology gets disrupted and, and gets thrown out, out the window within 18 months. And if you look at anything – I think a great example is solar panels. Look, If you look at how much efficiency has improved on, so, on solar panels over the past several years and you can even go back you know, 10, 15 years, that they, it's, it's gone so fast that a, a 10-year-old solar panel nowadays is almost obsolete. Wow. And well, at least in, in comparison to well, yeah, current. and some solar panels right now put out by um, uh, God was it Sun Edison? Sun Power Sun, Sun Power. Power yeah they're hitting 22 percent yeah, efficiency that's levels crazy. which is almost double what it was ten fifteen years ago. Well, I was reading um, if you read the book The Martian, I had to plug a fiction book that was just made into a movie, but um, he was talking about how the solar panels on uh, the rover was like ten. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy what they've been able to do in the last five, ten years. So, yeah. so you know, I, I, as a threat, I see that as the biggest one. Basically, if you're making an investment in the industry, it could get thrown on its head within eighteen months, and just on the simple progression of the uh, of the industry. And you've, we've seen this. We, 
you know, everybody talks about like the Solyndras and the A123s and all of these companies that have gone bankrupt. But it's that's just how fast the technology is evolving. Somebody comes out with a great technology, looks like they can sell, they can market it, commercialize it, and then boom, 18 months later, it's an obsolete product. And it's very, very difficult to catch up. So, uh, Taylor, you get the last word here. Um, what are your thoughts on Tesla? Did they? Do you think they got ahead of themselves with the Gigafactory? Was that a necessary risk they had to take in light of you know what Taylor said, or Tyler said? I mean, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, with Tesla, so I do think that the, the Gigafactory is going to be a benefit to them, if only the fact that they are going to be able to put the, their own batteries in their own cars to so eliminate some of the cost structure. Um, so. Maybe it's not like a play on global use of lithium batteries, but it certainly could be um, if this technology is used for for the foreseeable future. Um, another company, maybe Johnson Controls, if you didn't want direct like 100% exposure to lithium-ion batteries, um, that's a company that is very well diversified, also to, mainly with the automotive sector. Um, but their lithium-ion batteries is, is a segment of that business that, that could possibly grow if, if lithium-ion batteries take off in cars around the world as Tesla and other models are proving possible. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for your thoughts, guys. We'll Cheers. see you next week. Yep. If you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people on this program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Tyler Crow and Taylor Markman, I'm Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!